0: Good morning. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 22. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 22. Give you just a minute to turn there, and then I would like to pray before we begin. Let's pray. Father, we we remember Your Word earlier in the same Gospel where it said, in Jesus is life. There's no other place where any soul can have true life. So we're asking You this morning to break the bread, as it were. To show us Jesus. Make us hungry. And then satisfy us all with Him. Pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to pick up the reading, as I said, in John chapter 6, verse 22. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him, Him, pardon me, whom He has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So you can hear the the theme already coming out that Jordan announced earlier of this of the service from the sermon text concerning bread and and satisfaction and eating and when you eat Bread or other food, there's a certain element of satisfaction that comes. There's a fullness, a gladness. There's a reason that feasts are characteristically a joyous kind of occasion, something wonderful. And so I want to ask you that question this morning. When is the last time that you had some really good food? I'm not talking about Super Bowl Sunday food, a whole bunch of snacks. I'm talking about something more like a feast a really good feast. And for today's purposes, I want to talk with you about Indian food, or a feast of Indian food. And not just any Indian food, but most of the people in this room, oddly enough, have had the pleasure of eating a feast of Indian food prepared by two women in this congregation, Asha Foster and Beulah Bali. These women, in case you don't know, can absolutely make it happen in the kitchen. No exaggeration. You hear the laugh, it's because, as I said, almost everybody here has tasted these delicacies. So let me just set the table so you can imagine what it is that I'm talking about, this feast. First, the chicken biryani. All the spices and sauce sitting in that aluminum catering tray. The steam is coming out, and you know you're about to get some of it. Or the stuffed eggplant curry. Everything that is stuffed is good. Everything that is curry is good. And then the samosas. That's a a crispy, flaky, light brown, crusty thing. And on the inside of there, there's that hot, steamy, spiced potato. It's one of those things you burn your tongue on because you can't wait to eat it. But it's too hot. And the lentil and Indian spinach, all the spices, all the flavor, the goat curry. I said goat curry. But what about the naan, that wonderful Indian flatbread, that vehicle of curry delights that comes to you? It's delicious, it's awesome. But the list just goes on, The, the chicken curry, Jim Sugg's favorite. The butter chicken, amazing. The sambar, Andrew Thomas's favorite. The Thomas family's on the list more than once. There's a, it's a soup sambar with lentils and radishes, carrots, zucchini, squash, the pan-fried green beans, apparently Tracy Thomas's favorite. There's that second hit for the Thomas family. Pan-fried cabbage, pardon me. And after all this, you can't possibly eat it all. You're stuffed to the gills. And what do they do? Asha and Beulah, but they bring out the desserts. The carrot cake. The mango dessert. The coconut cake. And then you're nearly sick. But you're so happy. Because it's so good. And then here it comes. The Indian coffee at the end. Favorite of many people. At least including Chase Jones and Justin Tucker. In short, bellying up, to the Asha and Beulah Indian Feast is one of the most wonderful experiences, earthly speaking, that a person can have on planet Earth. It is amazing. It can't even all fit in the same serving room. It's all over the house. Multiple rooms with food. And whether you've had the feast I'm talking about or whether you've had some other unbelievable feast that your memory could easily pull up, this kind of feasting, this rejoicing and delicious food is a universal experience. Everybody knows, almost at least, everybody knows what it is to have an unbelievable meal. And it's universal for a particular reason. That's not by accident. It's universal because that's the way that God, the one who made us, has particularly designed us. Another example A bird dog, they love birds, they want to hunt the birds. But that's not by accident, that's because of breeders over generations selectively breeding only the dogs that want the birds. Someone intentionally put into the dogs this desire for the birds. Well, that's how it is with us. We are made intentionally by the one who created us to find a certain contented satisfaction and joy from a great feast. God made us that way. And there's a lot of goods that God made us to enjoy. And they're all the same in one way. You can enjoy them rightly, or you can enjoy them wrongly. So consider some other examples. How about clothing? It's one of the famous necessities. We must all have it. But It can go astray, right? Your use of it can go astray. What about the person whose closets, multiple closets, are just bursting and overflowing with all kinds of luxurious and expensive clothes they'll never possibly wear? Why do they have to have that many? Surely that's a misuse of a good thing. Or what about shelter? We all have to have shelter, right? But what about the wealthy man who has six houses? Some of them are 10 and 20,000 square feet, full of the most expensive things money can buy for one guy. Again, a misuse of a good thing. Let's get back to food. You're familiar with some ways food can go astray, right? We've heard of anorexia, a psychological disorder where food becomes somewhat of an enemy and the person withers away. Or perhaps morbid obesity. Food, the thing to be delighted in, actually becomes the cause of death often for people in certain situations. So good things, like food and clothing and shelter, can go awry. They can be misused. They can become morally wrong, and they can become practically destructive. And that's what we see in today's text, the same kind of issue. But it's food. Food's the issue, not the other examples. The people, the crowd that's following Jesus, is honed in, They are honed in on bread, a bodily necessity, but Jesus tells them they've gone astray. They've gotten off the straight and narrow path, and they've wandered off into the dark and treacherous woods. They're in danger. That's what we see happening in today's text. And as we approach it, we'll try to do so in two main parts. I think that's a reasonable enough way to approach it, the way that John perhaps has laid it out. First, John describes to us the crowd. He tells us what the crowd is trying to get. He tells us what they're really after. And he tells us why they're trying to get it. So first, all about the crowd. And second, because the people are all mixed up, they don't have eyes to see, they don't have ears to see, ears to hear, Pardon me, their hearts are aimed in the wrong direction. What happens in our second part? Jesus, you'll see, responds. He takes aim at all their issues. So the first part, The crowd and what it is that they want. We need to back up just a minute and see where this crowd came from. They didn't come out of thin air. There's a history. The beginning of chapter 6 tells us about the crowd. Jesus performs, as was mentioned already today, a miracle, and he feeds at least 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and then you can extrapolate from there. A lot of people from only what I could hold in my own two arms, five loaves and two fish. He does a miracle. He reveals something of his identity and his glory. And we get numb to reading these stories in the Bible. Imagine if someone did something like that today. Imagine the stir that there would be, the excitement, the news, media would be there. It would be unbelievable. Everybody knew something very uncommon, to say the least, was going on. And the crowd who see Jesus, who sees Jesus, do this miracle, the text tells us earlier in John chapter 6, they're very impressed and they want to come and it says take Jesus and make him king by force. And Brian talked to us about that a couple of weeks ago. They didn't have the same ideas about what a king should be, about what a messiah should be. They wanted something more like a nationalistic or a political deliverer. They were ruled by Rome in the promised land of all places by an ungodly, foreign, secularist or polytheistic regime. And they wanted that kind of deliverance, but Jesus had a different plan. He didn't want to acquiesce to what they wanted him to be for them. He couldn't be, refused to be, what they wanted him to be. Just as an aside, note they were seeking Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to be their king. And you can seek Jesus, therefore, and want Jesus to be your king, in a way that he doesn't want any part of. He slips away, he leaves. And so the story goes, to get back to where the crowd came from, he leaves, he goes up on a mountain by himself. The disciples, they go down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and they get into a boat, and they start paddling across the sea. And so Jesus is left on the other side, that would be the eastern side of the sea, by himself. Now, we know what happens. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He walks on the sea. He reveals his glory to his disciples. They see he's walked on water. That was our sermon from last week that Pastor Brian preached to us. But the crowd, they don't know what happened. They weren't in the boat with the disciples. They don't know he walked on the water. But when they get there to that side of the sea where the disciples got in the boat and went away, they see some evidence. That's where our text picks up in verse 22. They see some things that aren't adding up. What they know is that there was only one boat there. And they were, I guess, around, or they knew somehow, the text tells us, that the disciples got into the boat and went across, and Jesus did not get into the boat. And there was only one. There was no boat for Jesus. And the, the big crowd who has just seen the miracle, they know full well that that doesn't make any sense. Maybe he just started walking. Doesn't look like that's what they're thinking, though. They're honed in on Jesus, he's something of a celebrity to them, and they are hot on the trail. That is where the crowd has come from, and that is thus far what they're seeking. The way around the Sea of Galilee to get from this eastern side, I guess over here for you it's here, to get from this eastern side back across is really long if you've got to walk. And it's really long if you walk down the other loop. Both the loops are long, but it's not that long to get across by boat. It's a lot faster and easier of a journey to get there by boat, which is part of the reason that the crowd is noticing that things don't add up. So they're already very excited, this crowd. They've seen the miracle. Surely you can imagine what a crowd like that would be. The, the low rum, rumbling, the whispers, the murmuring, all the excitement, the buzz is in the air. And things aren't adding up. But John tells us that some other boats, one way or another, show up. And here the crowd is, and they say, oh, now we have a way across too. And they take those boats back across to the western side of the sea, and they end up in Capernaum. And they're very excited, and they come to Jesus. And you can look there in your text, and you can see what they say at the end of verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? That's the question. And they want to know, how did you get back over here with just... No boat. There was only one, and you didn't have one. So they're seeking him. And you can imagine at this point, th- this conversation with Jesus could go in at least two ways. He could have told them what he just did, couldn't he? He could have said, well, I walked across the sea. And his disciples would have vouched for him, to use John's word. They would have been witnesses for him. They could have told the crowd exactly what happened. But as we said, this is a crowd Jesus has already slipped away from once. He knows there's a problem with them, so he doesn't go that route. He also could have, the second way of dealing with the crowd, he could have just slipped away. He could have just evaded them a second time, but he doesn't do that this time. He's going to now engage them in conversation. He's going to talk to them. If you look in verse 26, Jesus begins to give them the answer to their question, or at least an answer to their question. They said, when... Did you get here? And he doesn't actually answer their question. They want to know how he got across the sea without a boat. But instead of answering how, Jesus tells them why they're asking that question in the first place. He knew. He knows. Maybe some of us in the room know what it is to approach Jesus knowing full well that with x-ray vision he knows everything everything about you you approach him if you're a Christian you know that you're welcome and at the same time you know that he knows you fully he knows all your motives he knows why you're making certain requests he knows in prayer meeting this morning why all of us prayed all the things that we prayed he knows All the things that we wanted to ask and did not. And he knows all the reasons we didn't ask those things. Jesus dissects people like this regularly in the Gospel of John. We've already come through some of them. Think about Nicodemus. Oh, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. Jesus responds, unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? Well, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Maybe even more startlingly, in talking with the woman at the well, she says, give me this water, this water that'll mean I don't have to come back to this well all the time. Give me the water, Jesus responds. Go call your husband and come here. He just dissects and redirects the conversation in a way that, for the woman, exposes the fact that she has no husband. She's living a a life of Immorality. Jesus knows he's a master soul physician 2,000 years ago and today. He's not changed. Well, when the crowd in our passage say, how'd you get here without a boat? What does he say? I said he doesn't really answer that question. But he directs them to a deeper and a more significant issue. Look in verse 26. Jesus answered them, and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You can see the discontinuity, I'm sure. How'd you get here without a boat? You just want more bread. That's why you're here. He tells them they're not interested in the giver. They just want the goods. So let me take you back to Asha and Beulah's feast. See in your mind, their big smiles as they get the joy of blessing you with their delicious cuisine. But now, imagine that you know you're not really interested in Asha and Beulah. You don't really care about a relationship with them. You're not interested in their company. You just are using them to get the food. You love Indian food. You need food to live. It is a necessity. After all, you know that if you play your cards right, these generous women will surely give you what you want. That's awful. That's awful. To use these precious women to get their food. And the fact that you need it doesn't take away from the awful nature of that betrayal at all, not in the least. The gift is unavoidably tied with the giver. You can't take them apart. They must, they do, go together. That's the way it is in all of life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that is, you've not put your faith in Christ, you've not trusted Him, you've not been baptized, you've not become a member of a local congregation, this is normal, basic Christianity. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, have you ever considered your life in this way? in these terms. You live in the world that God made. It's full of wonderful things. He gives you food to eat, air to breathe, shelter to live in, clothing to wear, perhaps a spouse, and countless other gifts. The sun that rises gives you light and warmth and food, the rain that falls so that you survive. He blesses and blesses and blesses even those who are not Christians Jesus talks like that at the end of Matthew chapter 5. You live in God's world. All those gifts are from God, and they are connected to the giver. And if you're not a Christian, it is doing the exact same thing that I described in using Asha and Beulah to get their food. For some reason, it doesn't strike us with the same moral gravity, but it is the same. To live in God's world, to receive all his kindnesses and want nothing to do with him. It is not just as bad as the betrayal I described with Asha and Beulah, but infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. That's what this crowd is doing in our passage. Jesus tells them they're not seeking him because they saw signs. That is, when they saw the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, they should have seen that as a sign or a signpost or a pointer to something else. And that is the identity of the one who did the miracle. He was revealing himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. And they didn't see that sign. They weren't interested in that. They wanted to put their belly back up to the table and be filled again. And so John has painted for us, through these first verses, the picture of the crowd and what they want. And at this point begins, you could call it a dialogue, but it becomes really more like a monologue. Jesus speaks and teaches and they just occasionally respond. And and the response, the dialogue, the bread of life discourse, some people call it, is longer than we can get into today. I read through verse 34. The dialogue goes on all the way until the, you could say, the end of chapter 6. We're getting almost half of it, maybe a third of it today. But from this point on, Jesus begins to redirect the people. He begins to show them what's true. He shows them their own hearts and why they've gone astray, but he also shows them in very explicit terms, who he is and what he's come to do. That's our second point. Jesus begins to set them straight. How is Jesus going to respond to this crowd with these motives? Look in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him... The Father, God, has set his seal. Now that's a long sentence. There's a which in the middle of it, and then there's a for after that. So let me summarize and say, there's a certain kind of food given by a certain kind of person with a certain kind of authority. First, a certain kind of food. Jesus tells them, don't work for the bread that molds, that that worms eat the bread that rots, the bread that ends up in a compost pile. Don't live for that. Don't pursue that as number one. Instead, work for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is using the very bread that he had multiplied that's still churning away and digesting in their stomach to talk about something deeper. Not that food, but this food. He's using that food to talk about this food. It's just like what he said in chapter 2, not the physical temple, but the temple of his body. Or what he said in chapter 3, not physical, biological birth, but you must be born again of water in the spirit, something deeper. Or in chapter 4, I've already mentioned the woman at the well, not the water in the bucket, but a well of water springing up to eternal life. And now here in our text, not that bread in your belly, but the bread of life that God gives. He's using these material blessings as metaphors for eternal realities. Well, what is it about bread that makes it a good metaphor? We've already passed through some of those old metaphors. What about the bread? What's the metaphor there? What eternal reality is Jesus pointing to? You could go a lot of routes. One of the most basic is simply the fact that if you don't eat, you die. If you don't eat, you cannot live. Said the other way around, if you want to live, you have to eat. Or you could say bread and all food in general then is a source of life, a certain kind of life. But Jesus is saying that just like that bread gives life, there's another kind of food that gives life nutrition and satisfaction for longer than the gap between breakfast and lunch. There's something deeper there's a food that endures to eternal life. It won't rot. There won't be worms. It'll keep you alive forever. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. So it's a certain kind of food. But also, I said, it's, it's given by a certain kind of person. Jesus tells them that the enduring food will be given by the Son of Man. That's the which which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, this is one of those statements that we grow numb to. I think, I hope, I suspect that if you'd have been there standing in front of him and he says, I'm the only person who will ever give the food that, that lasts to eternal life. There's no one else. It might have landed on you harder, although it didn't so much land on the crowd that way. Maybe not. Maybe not. Is he really saying that he's the only person who can give eternal life? There's no one else? Isn't that wrong? Isn't that egocentric? Isn't that fighting against the truth claims of, say, other religions? What about Muhammad and Gandhi and Buddha and Joseph Smith and all the New Age leaders that are floating around out there today? Are they all Jesus? Are they all on the outside looking in? None of them have life to give? That's right. That's what he says. The bread that endures to eternal life will be given by the Son of Man alone. But third, the enduring food is given by a person with a certain kind of authority. Not only that he has the ability to do it, he has the authority to do it. That's what comes after the for. For the Father, God, has set his seal on him. Now, if you're like me, You don't ever say, I set my seal. We don't talk like that, ever. So what is the setting of a seal? What does Jesus mean? Why do you set a seal? Well, the NIV translation and the NET, for example, they help us out, and they translate it like this. They say, on Jesus, the Father set his seal of approval. Okay? We say a stamp of approval. It's the same idea. We just use a different phrase to express the exact same idea it's the idea that you find when you read about Jesus baptism this is my beloved son in him I am well pleased or earlier in John chapter 5 when Jesus said the father gave me to have life in myself that's what we're talking about the father has given Jesus the authority to give the food that lasts to eternal life not just with the crowd but to you today. Jesus tells the crowd that the Father has no reservations about Jesus being the only person worthy to give eternal life. Now, at this point I want you to pay attention to me because the Bible sometimes tells us what happened, but they don't always tell us all, they don't point out all the distinctive features of what's happening. So let me tell you what I mean. In this conversation, I've just been saying, because Jesus has just been saying, some stunning things about himself. He's directing attention to himself in front of a very large crowd. He's the giver. He's the one in whom the Father has set his seal. So it would be like you're walking in the woods on a trail, and you come to a hard right turn. And right there at the hard right turn, just to make sure you don't get lost, is one of those wooden signs with an arrow pointing, I guess, to your right. Now imagine coming to that sign, you're walking right along, clearly indicated, and you just, you're supposed to go this way, and you just plow the other way, straight into the woods, and the brambles, and the thorns, and everything else. What happened? It wasn't that the sign wasn't clear. The communication was accomplished. The people who received the communication had an issue. Well, Jesus was crystal clear in directing this people to himself in the things that he's just been saying. But they do that. They do that wrong thing. The sign says go left, they go right hard into the woods in the darkness and they're going to get lost. They have selective hearing. Here's their response. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, to be fair, if you look at what Jesus said previously, pardon me, at the beginning of verse 27, the very first thing he tells them is about work. In the Greek, it's the first word. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food, do work, positively, do work for the food which endures to eternal life. So he did talk about work, but he also said some stunning things about his own position as the solitary giver and having the unique and glad-hearted approval of God Almighty on him. But they just reply about the work and what they should do. Tell us what to do. They just omit and ignore all the parts about Jesus. I mentioned before the gift and the giver, they go connected. They don't care about the giver. They can't even hear anything about the giver. Tell us what to do and we'll do it and listen to the I was going to say bold assumptions, the awful assumptions that they make. They assume that if Jesus tells them, they'll want to do it. They assume they have the will. And they assume that if Jesus tells them what to do, they'll have the ability to carry it out. They assume all this about themselves. Tell us what to do. We can work the works of God. Well, what's he going to say back to this? They've dodged him once. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And there he is, bringing it back to himself. They like to dodge him by talking about the work. And Jesus says that the work is all about coming directly to him. That's how you work for the food which endures. The work is believing. Now all of us are hardwired to do, by by hardwired I don't mean God's good design in creation. By hardwired I mean our mangled sparks coming out of the wiring design that we now have after the fall. We are hardwired in that sense to want, to work, but to do so in a way that assumes we got it. All of us are just like that. Put another way, nobody in the room has a history, a life history up to this point that doesn't have any self-righteousness in it, any works righteousness. We all compare ourselves to other people. All of us. We all have these moral standards. They change. They're arbitrary. We make them up however we want. We let ourselves slip wherever we want. We've all got these moral standards, though, and we all really care about whether or not we meet them. But as one person said, we all fall short of our own moral standards. We're just like the crowd. We're the same. The work that God wants you to do, first and foremost, the main point, is to believe in the one that he sent. That's the reason that he sent him. So Jesus would be your deliverer. Now, this is not what the crowd wanted. Not at all. They cannot, I don't think, look square into the face of Jesus and reckon with his claims. You've all seen a guilty child, maybe, four or five years old. They know they've done something wrong. You call them to you, they're talking to you. You say, What happened? And they're guilty and they know it. And what do they not want to do? They do not want to look you in the face. They're going to look around at everything else. They're all of a sudden so easily distracted when they could focus pretty well other times. They don't want to look you in the eye. But Jesus, taking that crowd, continues to reach down and lift their face and bring it up just like a father would so they'll look him in the face. He keeps directing their attention right back to him. This is the work of God that you believe. And they don't like it. So now they're going to be emboldened. And I'll summarize what they say next. They say, Prove it. Prove it. They can't wriggle away from what he's just said to them. Here's what they say. What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven, to eat. Prove it, Jesus. If you're going to make these claims about yourself, prove it. Now, if you've been paying attention to the beginning of John 6, both the summary I gave or if you're familiar with the text in general, this is the same crowd that has already seen the multiplication of the loaves. They just saw a more impressive miracle than any, according to natural law, more impressive than any person in this room has ever seen. They should be stunned and now they're saying, we need some proof. You need to prove it. Well, perhaps they're hard-hearted, their hearts maybe are hardened, like Mark tells us the disciples were. They hadn't learned anything from the multiplication of the loaves. Or or maybe they were familiar with Deuteronomy 18. Because earlier in John chapter 6, right after he multiplied the bread, they said, oh, maybe this is the prophet. Well, the prophet comes from that text, Deuteronomy 18. Now let me ask you a question. If you're an Israelite, and you know the history of what happened with Moses, the manna that comes down, the way that Moses provides, at least you could say Moses provides, the bread for the people, and then you know Deuteronomy 18 says there's another prophet coming, another prophet like Moses, would you expect, here's the question, would you expect that prophet to be equal with Moses? Or might you expect him to surpass Moses? Perhaps the crowd expects that the second prophet, the second Moses, is going to have to surpass Moses. Moses gave miraculous bread. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus gave miraculous bread. And we're going to need to see something else. You say that you're the one that God sent? Who's sent in the Bible? Oftentimes it's prophets. All the time, if you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, they're sent by God to bring God's message. So if you're going to be a prophet like Moses, you're going to have to surpass Moses. You need to prove it. And this is dense hard-heartedness. They don't help things by quoting Psalm 78, 24. That's the the psalm that they quote there, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. It's like they say, if you're going to claim to be sent by God, the soul giver if you're going to claim to be the soul giver of eternal life, and the only one whom the Father has set his seal upon, you're going to have to do something more than this, and we want to see it right here and now. And then they think that quoting this psalm, I'll say, at him, helps their position in what you might call the argument. But if you're familiar with that psalm, there really is a dark irony. As I said, they think they're helping their position, but let me tell you a little bit about the psalm. It's one of those psalms which recounts the history of Israel. It tells what happens when God uh, goes to rescue his people out of Egypt, and he brings them out with his strong and outstretched hand by the ten plagues you're familiar with, the Passover, and he brings them out into the wilderness. He cleaves the sea, splits it, and splits it apart so that his people can go through. His mighty acts are on display. He's keeping the promise that he made those years before with Abraham. And then he gets them out in the wilderness, and he meets them in power and glory in the law, the thunder and the lightning, the terror, the awe the way that Moses and everybody else were trembling in their fear because of the way God himself was coming down on the mountain to meet him in his glory. And then it tells about the way that he brought down bread from heaven and the way that he brought all those quail with the miraculous wind, about the way that they were were thirsting and they were going to die and God brought water out of a rock of all places. Rocks are not known for being wet. And God is miraculously providing for his people. The psalm describes all this history. It's one of those historical kinds of psalms. But included in there several times, in that same psalm, the psalmist is just plain outraged that even though God has done all that, the people of Israel still rebel. Let me just give you one sample. Yet they still continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Do you see the parallels of what's happening with ancient Israel in the wilderness and what's now happening right before the eyes of Jesus? with this crowd? Despite God's faithfulness and goodness, ancient Israel continued to sin and rebel and put God to the test to ask for food according to their desire. This was a sin of ancient Israel and now the crowd, modern Israel in, in the sense of in Jesus' day, in this very conversation is repeating the sins of their forefathers 1400 years earlier. Both were unbelieving, both demanded food, both put God to the test. The crowd thinks that Psalm 78 advances their position in their, I called it an argument, with Jesus. But the truth is they've just added to their own condemnation. Imagine a courtroom scene. There's a defendant. He's on trial. He calls a special witness. The witness is on his side. The witness gets up on the witness stand and he tells a story meant to show that his buddy, the defendant, is actually innocent. But by mistake, that very witness, in trying to exonerate his friend, slips in a few accidental details that prove the guilt of the defendant. That's what's going on here. The crowd thinks they're helping their case and they are not. The people of Israel's hearts, sorry, the hearts of the people of Israel haven't changed. They don't accept their Messiah when he comes. Total depravity is total. And when the Messiah comes to his own, they do not receive him. Now what will Jesus say when they go and say all that? He corrects them plainly, forthrightly, on four points. Look at verse 32 and 33. First, not Moses but my father. Like Brian preached two weeks ago the people had developed a sort of esteem for Moses beyond what would have been right and good and it had grown like a cancerous tumor into something awful. They wanted to A second Moses. No one can top Moses. It's just like when the woman at the well says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Jesus tells them that the episode in the manna wasn't about Moses' provision. They ought not look to Moses as the hero, but about God's provision. Second, not manna, but true bread. I get this, of course, from the word true in verse 32. The crowd had read about the manna, A little while earlier, they had tasted the multiplied bread that was now in their gut. But Jesus tells them there's a better bread. There's a true bread. The multiplied loaves were, as I said, signs. They pointed beyond themselves to something greater, the true bread. And right after our sermon text for today ends in verse 35, Jesus tells them point blank, I am the bread of life. I have life in myself. I have the nourishment that you need. I can satisfy that hunger in your soul beyond what you could possibly imagine. True bread, not the manna. Not biological life, number three, but eternal or true life. Now John uses that word life often in the Bible, and you've got to be careful because it's not a special word. Sometimes it can just mean the opposite of dying, right? When Paul later will talk about Life, he'll say, whether in life or death, I want to glorify God in my body. That just means whether I go on living in this life or not. So it's not a special word, but John has used it already in John in some very significant ways. I mentioned earlier verse 4 of chapter 1 in the prologue, which is like the table of contents that shows you where this whole gospel of John is going, and here's what it reads. In him was life. In Jesus was life. Same word. And the life was the light of of the world. Or a verse that probably everybody in the room knows already, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Or as we often mention, maybe every sermon we have, I hope so, the end of the gospel, of this gospel, the gospel of John, we get the purpose statement. Here's how it reads, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So it's not biological life, but true life. The kind of life that John wrote this gospel for in the first place. The kind of life that Jesus came down from heaven to give. And Fourth and finally, not for Israel only, but for the world. Not Israel only, but for the world. It's that last word in verse 32. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To all Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, at this point, Jesus has put all the pieces out there on the table for everybody to see. It's all in plain sight. There's nothing hidden back in the shadow, snuck under the table. He just put it all out there. And the crowd doesn't get it at all. It's not sinking in. They say, Lord, always give us this bread. That should Maybe should ring a bell for you. The woman at the well says almost the exact same thing. It almost reads like a a direct quotation. He's talking to her about the water that'll spring up in her and be a a well of water to eternal life. And she just gets excited. She's if she's going to have a well inside of her, she's not going to have to come back to this well and draw water in the heat of the day. This is going to be great. Oh, always give this to me. Well, here's the crowd now in front of Jesus. Always give us this bread. They still want this far down in the conversation with Jesus the same thing they were looking for when they came across the sea to ask him how he got here. They had already had the bread. They just want some more. And you say, that's absurd. It is. And I want to know how many people in this room have listened to this whole sermon and how many countless before doing the exact same thing. You have to have ears to hear the truth. It's not as simple as a rational explanation. But at the same time, Christianity has no secrets. There's no initiation that gets you into some inner circle to know what's really going on. Everything about Christianity is a wide open book. Everything we believe is here. There's nothing additional. This is it. It's all there, and you have access to it all. So let me put the main message of the whole Bible into the terms of our sermon text, and I'll tell you what the whole book's about. Just like Psalm 78 described Old Testament Israel as stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and unbelieving, that same Mangled up hardwiring is present in all of us. Jews, ancient Israel, modern Israel, the Samoan Islands, in Hawaii, Cameroon, everybody. Just like having a great feast is universal, having really messed up hardwiring is universal. You read about Old Testament Israel, you read about you. And because Of that rebellion, which the Bible calls sin, God brought death, that's the opposite of life, God brought death into the world. That's why without food and clothing and shelter, we die. That's why when you get old, you die. That's another universal death. A just God will not withhold a penalty rightly deserved. But there is a food that gives life to dead and dying men. Not only when you come to Jesus, when you believe in him, he'll be for you nutrition and life. He'll also satisfy the desires of your soul, what people sometimes call the existential cry of your soul. He'll satisfy everything that you have that could be satisfied. Jesus is the bread of life that comes to do those things for his people. And that same Jesus that dealt with this crowd here is the one who later on, flipped the pages in the Gospel of John, goes to suffer and die like a criminal on a Roman cross. He was executed after a sham of a trial. Talk about injustice. They knew he was innocent. They wanted to put him to death. And he did that, dying on the cross, to soak up, just like bread would soak up wine into itself, the judgment and wrath of God for rebels like us and all the people who would put their trust in him no matter if they're like Psalm 78 or not. But because he has life in himself, the tomb could never hold him. It's like the author of Hebrews said, he had the power of an indestructible life. He could not remain dead. Life cannot stay dead. And he now sits at God's right hand. He was raised from the dead. The disciples watched him go into the clouds. He took his seat with all God's approval at God's right hand as the only possessor and distributor of eternal life. Friends, we we began with a feast. Jesus infinitely eclipses even the most wonderful Feast there has ever been on planet Earth. And in order to display something of that glory, the day will come when there will be something the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. That day is coming. And all God's people will eat at a table with the risen Lord and find him to be enough for them in glory. What do you do about it? How can you receive the life? The work that would God have you to do is the same thing Jesus said. You should believe in the one that God sent. Let's pray. Father, our our feeble efforts to speak and to listen about things that are so far beyond us. Lord, would you take a sermon, would you take this portion of your word and do with it what Jesus did with the loaves that he multiplied. Do more with the little itty bitty thing that we have than we could imagine. and Make all of us to be satisfied in Jesus alone. Give us Deep joy, the kind of rejoicing that we have after a feast. Jesus said, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. We won't go hungry. We'll have the great satisfaction, the great pleasure of being full on Christ if we'll put all our trust in him. And I pray that you would bring it to pass. pray in his name. Amen.